cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbit! And cut. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut, let's try it again. Cut! And cut! 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 Check the game. Cut! 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 Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Annie. I'm Angie. And we're two siblings that love movies. And we're now entering spooky season. Ha, 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 ha. But before we get to that, we want to plug our last two episodes, which was on the film Almost Famous, where we try to answer, is Stillwater the greatest rock and roll band, fictional rock and roll band of all time? You can actually find it streaming anywhere to any podcast. And we're also on YouTube where we do a video podcast. Just search Cut Movie Pod and you should be able to find us. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at CutMoviePod. And let's go ahead and get on with this episode. Angie, what movie are we doing this week? So for this episode, we wanted to pick a classic horror movie, something everyone has probably seen, if not seen, then definitely heard about. And we landed on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which coincidentally is on the Criterion channel now. So... If you have a subscription to the Criterion channel, it's a part of a slew of 70s horror that they're doing, along with like Black Christmas and some other films. But yeah, you can find Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the Criterion channel if you want to watch it, if you haven't seen it. Um, It's also on Amazon. I don't think it's streaming anywhere else, but you can buy a copy of it on Amazon because I think it had the 40th anniversary. Yeah, there's a few versions of it. There's a lot of, uh, they restored it. They did a 4K transfer. Um, but most of the ones that are on Blu-ray are like that same print, which looks amazing. And so we really highly recommend, uh, with any of these, if you haven't seen it before, check it out and then listen to the podcast. Um, because we don't want to ruin anything, you know, spoiler alert, we will talk very thoroughly about this movie. Um, but we really encourage all you guys that are listening to watch the movie and then listen to the podcast. First off, I need to admit something that... I am not the biggest horror movie fan. We probably just lost all our listeners by me saying that. Um, Angie, why do you like horror movies so much? I I didn't at first. I was a really big baby with horror movies. I think the first horror movie I saw was The Haunting in like 1999. And I was really scared to go see it, but I kind of went anyway because I was with my friends. And I actually saw that movie twice because I loved it so much. but even after that, I was still kind of a baby with horror movies. I remember I, I watched Saw when I was in high school and it was like I couldn't watch half of it because I had my eyes closed. But I don't know. I think I like horror movie because it's always the same. Not always the same, but like the formula for a horror movie is usually the same. As someone who has anxiety, knowing the way a horror movie ends, kind of it always usually ends the same. And so it's like a fear that you know isn't real, I guess. So it's like a controlled fear where I can control how much I'm getting scared because I know how it's going to end. Doesn't that give you more anxiety though? Or because you know that it's temporary, you could just sort of just yeah, cast it? Yeah, it's kind of the same way I feel about like going to haunted mazes. Like I know that nothing's going to happen really. Like I just, I'm going to get scared, but that's it. Um, but again, I know people who are the opposite of that. Like they're like, like, me. like you. They're like, I can't go into a haunted maze because then I'll freak out. I can go into a haunted maze. Like I can mentally prepare myself, but you don't enjoy it. <laughs> I don't. It's it depends on the maze. But to me, with like horror movies, 
like I don't need to be scared. I feel like the real world <laughs> is scary enough. And so to me, it's more of like, like, I don't like jump scares either. So to me, like if I see a movie that has like an audio like that, um, it's just like kind of lame to me. But I understand why people enjoy it. But And it's also the way that I grew up, horror movies in general, like our mother, The Exorcist was a pivotal sort of mind fuck in that we were set up to believe that the exorcist was like awful and you should real. never see it <laughs> and real and to stay away from that. So I think a lot of that had to do with my sort of fear of watching horror movies and just horror in general. And But I mean, as I've gotten older, obviously like I've been more open to them and, and just aware that there is some value to them where when I was younger, I was just like, I don't need to see this. Going back to what you were saying about The Exorcist, that was really a big reason why I didn't like horror movies is because our mom was just like, don't, don't. She was like traumatized by The Exorcist. Yeah. So whenever she would talk to us about any horror movie, she would be like, nope, that's bad. Don't, don't. And so for the longest time, I didn't watch them and I was scared of them. But I think I just used that fear and just completely leaned into it and was like, well, I'm here already. So, and you were talking about how like the world, the real world is scary enough already. I think that's why a lot of horror fans like horror too, is because the real world is awful. So you can escape into this fantasy where like the monsters are tangible and you can kill them, you know, unless it's like Jason who lives forever. But I think that's part of the reason why people really enjoy horror, which actually during the pandemic, people have really been leaning into horror to, I guess, alleviate. Like a therapy session? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like a like an exposure therapy kind of, you know? Like I know everyone was watching Contagion for like the first month of quarantine. So let's get into your first memory of Texas Chainsaw. My first memory of Texas Chainsaw was actually the trailer to the remake with Jessica Biel. Which to this day is one of the scariest movie trailers I've ever seen in my life. It's a brilliant trailer. Especially, I can't remember what movie I even saw that it was playing ahead of. Because it couldn't have been a horror movie because I think I was, it came out in like 2003. Three, yeah, 2003. So I was like 12, 13. But I don't Didn't remember. Didn't I tell you about it? I think we were seeing a movie together when we saw the trailer for it. Oh, really? Because you have, I remember very vividly, you have that part where the screen goes black and you just hear Jessica Biel like breathing and running. And then you hear Leatherface's like footsteps and you could hear it like in the back of the theater. Like it sounded like he was coming down yeah. the back of the theater. And then the chainsaw was just like deafening and loud. Um, so that's my first memory of Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the one we're talking about today, which is the original version. I remember you buying the DVD, which you can probably see behind me. It's got like the ground, the beef, meat, the ground beef on it. And I remember sneaking it and watching it by myself when I probably shouldn't have. But so that's my first memory is stealing your DVD and watching it. <laughs> I remember, like I said, I grew up avoiding horror movies. And I, I mean, I eventually saw like all the big ones like Friday the 13th, Halloween, etc. But I remember specifically for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, people out there. But that release of the DVD was around, I think, early 2000s. And it was a big deal because I think that was like the first time it had been on DVD. And it was like a special edition. 
And so there was a lot of hoopla with like, oh, we got to get it. And I worked retail back in the day. So we would, you know, secretly, we weren't supposed to do it. We would save copies of them because we knew that they would sell out. And then again, this is before streaming. And so this was the only way to, to get these films. And so I remember getting it and then watching it. And I was, wasn't impressed. Like, I think my mentality was still like, this is kind of lame and, and really low budget. Um, but I think, like I said, over time, I've sort of grown to appreciate these films and especially doing research and sort of picking up on things that when I was much younger was dismissive of, I was, I'm more open to that stuff. And so when I first watched it, it was just like, eh, like it's all right. Yeah, me too. Obviously there's something there because it gained a cult following and a lot of people appreciated it. And so, like I said, over time, it sort of grew on me and and obviously now it's one of the all-time classics. Yeah, and I thought it was also weird, like at the time when I watched it, your copy, I thought it was weird that you even had it. So I was like, why why does he have this? Like, it was so weird. Because yeah, we never had horror movies in the house. We had like Jaws. And I don't think mom ever even found out about it. Like to this day, I don't think she even knows that I have it. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah, because I remember I'd have slumber parties and my friends would be like, well, what scary movies do you have? And I'd be like, Jaws. Like I didn't have a horror movie until for some reason my friend for Christmas gave me Rob Zombie's Halloween. I don't know why, but that was like the only horror movie I had for a really long time. And now I just have a bunch of them. That brings us to the question about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When we do these podcasts, we like to ask like an ultimate question that we hope to answer by the end of, you know, spewing out our research and our thoughts on the movie. So for this episode, we want to answer, is Texas Chainsaw Massacre the most influential horror slasher movie? And kind of list the reasons why we think it is or it isn't. Angie, I see that you have a drink next to you. Do you want to explain what drink we're having? Normally when we film these, we try to find a drink that kind of correlates somehow to the movie. Last week it was a Heineken. Can't remember what it was for Titanic. I don't think it was anything specific. I don't think we did anything yet. Yeah. But for this one, we decided on the Texas Buck, I think is what it was called. You can hear my eyes. So what it is, it's honey syrup, whiskey, and ginger beer. So it's kind of like a Moscow mule, but with whiskey. I don't know. what's. I think it's vodka in a mule. The reason we chose the Texas Buck is because the movie takes place in Texas. And a lot of the origins of the film are actually based out of Austin, Texas, which we'll you know, do a deep dive into. Some introductory info on the movie, if you aren't aware. It was directed by Toby Hooper. It came out in 1974, and it was written by Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel. It wasn't Toby Hooper's first feature film, but it was kind of the one that... This was his breakthrough. Right, that garnered him most attention. The budget is anywhere between $60,000 and $140,000. I found kind of those two numbers as I was researching, and it grossed... The first year it was out, it grossed $26.5 million. And it's also in the collection of films at the MoMA, which is kind of random, but makes sense. The information that uh, I'll be talking about and probably some of the info that Manny will be talking about were taken from a few articles. A New York Post article called The Intolerably Putrid Making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Larry Getlin. They came, they saw it in Texas Monthly by John Bloom, which is a really good article, which is really long. And I thought it was just weird that it's in Texas Monthly. So check it out if you want to get more information. And then the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film by Professor Carol Clover. 
The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween and the Legacy of the Final Girl by Emma Frazier and the History and Transformation of the Final Girl on Film School Rejects by Mary Beth McAndrews. So that's where I got all my information. All the info that I'll be talking about is mostly from all those articles. A little information on Toby Hooper. When we were talking about the drinks we're making, um, Manny was talking about how a lot of the history of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre takes place in or around Austin, Texas. And that's because Toby Hooper was born and raised in Austin. Back then, it wasn't, you know, the hubbub that it is now. Like now, it's kind of one of the major cities in Texas. Back then, it was just a tiny little town in Texas. His mother actually went into labor with him at the Paramount Theater. Whoa. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't figure out what movie they were watching. But yeah, his mother went into labor in the theater. So he was born to be a director. Born in the theater. He started using his dad's 8mm camera to start making his own like little movies. He went to the University of Texas for two years and was involved in the radio TV like film department. He would borrow a 16 millimeter camera from a local like news station and would just like shoot random movies. And that's how he got a gig shooting for the station because he would just keep borrowing their camera. Um, After that, he went on tour with folk singers during Vietnam and was kind of contracted to shoot a documentary about them. And that's kind of how he got more into making films. In 1970, he made his first feature, which we were talking about, called Eggshells which I don't even know if you can find it now. I tried to look for it and I I couldn't find anything. (laughs) So basically the idea was to show the end of the war and kind of the troops coming home, but seen through the eyes of a commune, which sounds weird. Yeah, super weird. When it was released, it didn't really make money and it was only shown on like a few college campuses. And that's how I met Kim Henkel is because they were working on the film. I think Kim was like an actor in it or something. Um... And they started working on a script that they were thinking of a modern version of Hansel and Gretel. That was like what they had in their mind. And, you know, they didn't have a budget or anything. So Toby was kind of like, what kind of genre movie can we make with no money? And that's when he was like, a horror movie, obviously. Of course. Of course. Which is true. Like, yeah. Especially around that time. You know, it's... You think about the previous horror movies that had come out. There wasn't much. And the ones that did exist were not of the slasher variety. Right. They were more of, you know, Rosemary's Baby and Psycho and more psychological than actual, you know, violence in your face. Yeah. Well, like the only movie that I think of before Texas Chainsaw Massacre is The Last House on the Left, which is not like a slasher movie. It's more of just like men being terrible. To women. Yeah. yeah. Which I think, I, I mean, I, people like that movie. I don't like it. When we go back to the inception of the movie, I'm going to talk about a little bit of how Leatherface came to be and just the, the subject matter of Texas Chainsaw, like pretty much just the plot, like how Toby thought about it. Of course, you know, people who have studied Leatherface and know about Leatherface know that one of the big inspirations was the serial killer Ed Gein. Quick history on Ed Gein. Um, he's suspected to have killed several victims between 1954 and 57. Not in Texas, though. I think it was Wisconsin. Wisconsin. They called him the Butcher of Plainfield. He would rob graves of recently deceased females and kind of taxidermy and necrophilia, and it was nasty business. He would make corsets with, like, their skin. He would make belts and chairs. He has, like, a really popular nipple belt. That's just, like, a belt made of nipples. 
And that's actually where they got the inspiration for Buffalo Bill, too. Right. right. So Ed Gein's inspired a bunch of, you know, horror movie bad guys like Norman Bates as well. I think there's only on record that he killed two women, but they suspect him in like many missing person cases around that time that happened because it was the 50s. So they didn't really, really have anything to go on. Did you know that Toby Hooper had relatives that lived about 10 minutes from Ed Gein's house. I did not know that. And so as a kid, he would get these stories from his family, but he didn't know it was Ed Gein. It was just some guy. Oh. And so he grew up with these stories about like how they had, you know, bones outside in the patio and all these weird things surrounding this house, but he didn't know that it was Ed Gein. And so that I feel like was the seed in his brain to like, as a grown up, to be, hey, let's do an Ed Gein story. And it wasn't until after he even made Texas Chainsaw Massacre that, that he, he figured out. out that it was Ed Gein. Oh, my God. Which is insane to me. And so it's like living next to Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> not knowing that it was Jeffrey Dahmer. And then, you know, you grew Making up with these stories. Making a Jeffrey Dahmer movie? Exactly. The idea of the chainsaw came to Toby, which I'm sure lots of us have had this thought once or twice when we're shopping during Christmas. So he was at, I think, Montgomery Ward. And he was just looking at the throngs of people. And I think Montgomery Ward had like a like a hardware section. So he like saw a chainsaw and was just kind of like, this would be so much easier if I grabbed the chainsaw and just like hacked all these people to bits so that I can get my Christmas shopping done, which sounds a lot worse than it is. I think that's part of the what we were talking about earlier, how sort of horror movies, we all have dark sides in our brains and it's sort of our outlet to, you know, release those dark thoughts in a fun way not a literal way where we're like yeah i'm just gonna go kill a lot of people when it comes to the inspiration for leatherface which is the main villain toby hooper had thought back on a story he had heard about a doctor that was in his pre-med days and made a halloween mask out of a cadaver so he like skinned the cadaver's face and just kind of like wore it as a halloween mask Pulling a Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, totally. Another inspiration for Hooper to make Texas Chainsaw is is more political. He talks about how the movie really came out of Watergate. And specifically a song called, he says, Dead Dog in the Middle of the Road. But the title is actually Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road. And the song is by Ludon Wainwright III. Ludon was on a road and he found a flattened skunk in the middle of the road on a New York road. And that inspired this song. It was like a top 50 hit. And it's basically just him. It's like a folk song where he's talking about there's a dead skunk on the road. <laughs> and like, I, it smelled terrible. <laughs> and it's very basic. But people have really de- deconstructed the song and basically talk about how it's an allegory for President Nixon. Oh, wow. They interviewed uh, Wainwright. And he said... Okay, that's a cool analysis, but for me, it's really just about a dead skunk lying on the highway. Although Hooper buys into that, there's a more meaningful uh, sense to that song. But Wainwright is like, no, it's just about a dead skunk. And it, like I said, it became a hit. And that was his big claim to fame, Wainwright's hit. Another inspiration that Hooper mentions is the intentional misinformation that was under the regime of, of Nixon. And so one of the reasons why the film begins with the following film you're about to see is true is purposeful because that's what the government was doing 
to the American people, which, wow, sounds very familiar Mm. to what's happening in 2020. It's purposeful. And I feel like that's why a lot of people bought into the film is because the opening crawl talks about how the film you're about to see is true. It's, you know, mentioning that the government's basically lying to you. And especially during Watergate, um, you had the oil crisis in 1973, which you talk about that scene in the film where they go to the gas station and, you know, there's no gas. It's, it's all relative to the Vietnam war. And like I said, you know, Nixon and what the government was doing. Speaking of money, um, that was kind of a big issue. Like I was mentioning earlier, they didn't have any budget really. So they kind of started looking around to see kind of anyone who would back their film in any kind of way. Bill Parsley was a VP of financial affairs for Texas Tech and had already financed two films, but the films didn't really go anywhere. And Warren Skarin was the first head of the Texas Film Commission. Skarin called Parsley in like the summer before they started shooting and told him about this new horror movie that he had kind of discovered. A week later, Parsley called Hooper and agreed to give him $60,000 for a 50% stake in the film, which is kind of a lot. But I mean, if you need to make a movie. They then presented it to Robert Kuhn, which was Parsley's attorney, and he decided to give them $10,000 more. Henkel's sister put in $1,000, and then one of Kuhn's, like, friends put another $10,000. So people are just, like, giving money to Toby Hooper. And I think with inflation, it came out to $1.4 million budget, roughly. Again, there's variations in numbers. But I kind of did the math and it was around modern 1.4 million, which is nothing. Nothing. And this is just the first in a slew of money stuff that I'm going to be talking about. So this was just, you know, the initial offer. Scarin actually was the one that suggested they change the name to Texas Chainsaw Massacre a week before they started principal photography. Because before that, they had names like Head Cheese, Leatherface. Leatherface. Uh, there was like some other names. Which Gunner, who played Leatherface, when he saw... Because I think the working title was Leatherface. Yeah. They didn't change it until they saw the film. And so Gunner, seeing the film for the very first time, thought Leatherface, this is my claim to fame. I'm Leatherface. And so he's like, dude, you ruined the title of the movie, Toby. (laughs) What are you doing? Once Toby had his initial budget set, um, he had to move on to casting. And when you look at the casting... It's a bunch of nobodies like you don't recognize anyone in the film because they were all either, you know, students or, you know, went to drama schools, community theater folks, all that stuff. For Sally, who, you know, we'll get into a lot on Sally later. Marilyn Burns was 21 years old and she was a drama student at the University of Texas. She was also the only actress serving on the Texas Film Commission, which is kind of how she got the job. She had been an extra here and there in movies, done some plays, and she was also a cocktail waitress at a place called Via Capri, where Parsley and a bunch of other, you know, political dudes would go to drink. So there's kind of that connection there. It's not really a, it's not really known how Hooper first came into contact with Burns or who suggested her. I'm guessing it was Parsley. Um, but he told her that he owned half of a small horror movie and suggested that she star in it. She kind of went to read for Sally and was pretty much immediately cast because in my research, I saw that Toby always liked busty women. Of course. So the rest of the cast was assembled, like I said, from, you know, drama schools nearby, community theaters, 
friends, relatives. It's pretty much like if you were making a horror movie and we're just casting your buddies and like their, you know, their friends. Alan Danziger appeared in Eggshells and then he was cast as Jerry for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Terry McMinn was a leading actress at St. Edwards University and she was ended up being cast as Pam. William Vale played Kirk and Paul Partain played Franklin, who everyone hates. Paul Partain, that dude. So one of the things that I read was that he was in character nonstop. And so even when they when they cut, he was still he never got out of the wheelchair, <laughs> was really annoying. And <laughs> out of all the characters that Toby wanted to kill off, Franklin was high on the list because he was so annoying and so when that scene happened he was just extremely happy to get him off the damn set because he was but toby admits that he was great that he was great in that character when they interviewed marilyn burns kind of about it she was pretty much like you know what paul is like a sweetheart but paul as franklin she was like i could not stand him nobody could stand him everyone just kind of hated him and there's a specific scene where i feel like the real life frustration between them yeah really plays off really well yeah and we'll you know mention it a little bit later moving on to my least favorite character more than franklin is the hitchhiker because he's just like disgusting i hate him so (laughs) ed neal was cast as a hitchhiker he was on his way back from a restaurant where he was getting tanked for a role he was playing. And so he's like walking by, I guess, the classroom where they were having auditions. And there was a girl outside that was like, hey, are you going to try out for the movie? And so he was like, yeah, okay." And Toby Hooper kind of asked him if he could be weird. And Ed Neal just started being weird. And that's how he was cast as a weird hitchhiker. Do you know how Gunner, a.k.a. Leatherface, got his part? I have kind of a blurb on it because I know that it was already cast. Oh, really? So Leatherface had already been cast. Gunner is six foot four. He's a giant dude. He was born in Iceland, but he lived in Austin and was a carpenter and like a bartender. So he was having a a burger one day when someone mentioned that there was like a movie in town and that he'd be great for the killer because he was so tall. But they were like, unfortunately, they've already cast it. But you'd be cool. You'd be good for the killer. Two weeks later, he gets a call saying that the guy that was originally hired was holed up drunk in a motel and wouldn't come out and was kind of blabbering about how the movie was had like bad karma to it. And like he just didn't want to do it and just like would not come out. So Gunnar Hansen went to see Hooper and like he didn't even read. Hooper just saw him walking across the street and was just like, that's the guy. One of the stories that I heard is that he didn't really audition either. but that he walked through the doorframe and he was able to fill out that doorframe. And creepy. Toby Hooper's like, Ugh. that's my guy. And then after the fact, he asked Gunner, he said, can you be evil and scary? And Gunner is like a teddy bear. Like yeah. he's not 1% evil. And he said no. And then Toby Hooper got nervous and he's like, well, can you act it? Can you fake it? And he's like, oh yeah, I could totally do that. After the premiere and the film had come out, he told Gunner, he said, you know, you had the part as you walked through the doorframe. And so you really didn't have to say anything. When it came to the cook, who I thought was the dad, who you said is the older brother. It's kind of vague. Okay, Like according to Toby Hooper, his intention was that he was supposed to be the older brother, but he is like a parental figure. I just assumed. I mean, grandpa. Right. 
and that's another thing too is like because the grandpa character exists that makes sense now he's kind of the top of the pyramid right the reason that he was cast was because toby hooper had to cast at least one sag member jim had met hooper henkel and bozeman a couple years earlier on another film and toby called him and was like dude i need a sag actor that i can pay play, pay union scale to and i guess that was just like a thing you had to do so you had to pay union scale to an actor and one or two union technicians. So you had to have several union members on your film. And that's how Jim ended up being cast. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's great. His duality and his character where he seems like the nicest guy in the world and then just turns on a dime. Um, he, yeah, he, he was perfectly cast for that character. Also, he seemed like a really nice guy too. And he just like loves the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he was. And like, like I heard offset that like he would just turn it off and just yeah. would help the crew like, hey, I need to move a light stand and he would just move it. And even like in the behind the scenes info, when everyone's talking about all the shit they went through that we'll get into later, he's still like, yeah, it was shitty. But you know what? I look back on it and it was fun. <laughs> and he's just like an old man. And he was already kind of old, like when they were filming. Yeah. And as an older man, he's still like, you know, what? it was fun. Like, I can't complain. Um, so I just thought that was really great. And now we enter the film. Opening Crawl. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and the macabre, my favorite word, as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Is that the same crawl that plays at the beginning of the remake? I don't know, because I haven't seen the remake. Oh, it's so good. Okay. It must be. It The remake is really good. I love the remake. I heard really good it's things really about great, it. really great, yeah. And if it's based anything off the trailer, like how we talked about. it's Yeah, it's pretty good. It's, it should be pretty prime. So we got to analyze the crawl. It's really well written, I think. And like I said, my favorite word is the macabre. 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 The person who read it is John Larroquette. Now, for the kids, you probably don't know who John Larroquette is, but he was on a show. His claim to fame is really Night Court. Boop, boop. That's a little... Boop, boop. Yeah, I think if I'm If you've seen a little... the Family Guy parody, I'm sure that's where people... You haven't seen that? I don't know. I think I'm still a little the, young for that. because They I don't... mock the song. No. It has a really... Night Court? Night Court, yes. No. And he played a lawyer. Nope. He was in other things, but that's his like, that's like claim to fame. Okay. So John Larroquette did the, the crawl. Toby Hooper's direction to him was, I want Orson Welles to read this. So it was John Larroquette's hard job to try to be Orson Welles, but he still sounds like John Larroquette. Like we had said earlier about this film being based on actual events, that was the big selling point of this film in that most people seeing this film thought this had actually happened. And I believe Gunner talks about how years later he had people go up to him that were working in prisons and said like, oh yeah, I knew Leatherface. He basically had a bunch of mental problems and he ended up being a cook at the prison. Oh my God. And he would be like, bro, this didn't happen. <laughs> Leatherface is not real. But I think that's that opening crawl and just the way that it's set up that way made tons of people believe that that it actually happened. 
the following scene is the flash bulb of the camera going off and it's the introduction about what you're about to see and it's just a bunch of bones and body parts toby hooper intentionally wanted those shots to go from complete darkness to the flash of the bulb and it really made the cinematographer very worried because if you've ever shot a film short film any of that even though scenes are dark you want a little bit of light you don't want it to be completely dark because it looks kind of like amateur hour and so it made the cinematographer really nervous and that I need a little sprinkle of light, but Toby Presnell needs to go from black to the flashbulb and then back to dark to sort of freak people out. And I think that's that was ultimately the right move. Yeah, I think it works really well. Um, besides the camera noise that I hate. It's like one of the scariest noises. Going ever. back to the trailer of the 2003 yes. version, that's the, they use ver- it, the big thing that I, I remember. Hate it. And I remember me and my buddy who... I'd swear that I saw that movie with him and not with you, but maybe we saw another movie that maybe. had the trailer. But we had always like any time we were telling a freaky story or something scary, we just do the of the noise of the of the uh, the bulb. Going from dark to light really works for me, I think, because once the light hits, you kind you're like disoriented because it was dark. And just as you start to figure out what it is you're looking at and you're like horrified, it goes back to dark again. And you're like, wait, was that what I think it was? Exactly. Which so I think that really works. Yeah, it's like a little bit of a tease about what you're about to see, but enough for your imagination to take over. And And starting a movie like that is like, I'm sure back then it's already like starting from 100. Next up is the shot of the cemetery. And that's where you see kind of the bodies on the headstone. That was actually not part of the principal photography now. For those who don't know, when you shoot a film, you shoot the principal photography, which is would you have storyboarded or on the script for the most part. And every movie misses something or you're filming something and you think, oh, we should do this scene to sort of connect the story a lot better. And so you do pickups or reshoots and it's part of every production. And that was part of one of the pickups is that they thought that they needed a better opening because the film was not supposed to open that way. So they went back after the fact and reshot those shots of, of the bodies. And you hear the narration of the radio of how there were grave robbers and that they don't know where it came from. And I think that adds a little bit more of the mystique of the, that this actually happened and shooting at a, at a real cemetery um, adds really to the atmosphere of, of the beginning of the film. The opening credits are I think some of the most talked about because when I first saw it, I couldn't tell what that background was. Like it just, it looks red with the black and it was just like, what am I looking at? It's, yeah. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the uh, of the Stargate sequence in 2001 where it's sort of a mishmash of like real landscapes and, and just oversaturated colors. The footage that they actually shot were sunspots. Okay. And just like you could see sort of the flares off the sun and just like really saturated with red. Um, and a lot of film experts sort of dissect that as like, oh, there's this hitting meaning with the sun and, and there's like, you know, it's hot and it's red. And so it's like death and yeah. Satan and whatever. But Toby Hooper says, we just thought it looked cool <laughs> for opening cool. the film. <laughs> like that's there's no real much more depth than that. If you've seen the original poster or at least one of them, 
it's the shot. Oh, you can actually see it behind Manny right now. It's the shot of the van and then the dead armadillo on the road. Originally, which I'm glad they changed it. It was supposed to be a dead dog. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah it was that's... supposed to be like the sun that you're talking about. And it would dissolve into the eye of the dead dog and kind of just like move. That's terrible. Awful. But yeah, that's what they decide. They're like, you know, when it comes to like domestic animals being dead, people don't really like that. No. So they found a dead horse on the side of the road, but nobody wanted to get close enough to shoot it because there was like maggots. So it was an actual real dead horse? Yeah, they found a real dead horse, but nobody wanted to shoot it because it was gross. And there was like maggots and it was stinky. So they found a dead armadillo on the road. And but that's classic. To me, it fits the Texas I think theme. so too. Absolutely. Like other than, I don't think the dog, but when you were mentioning about the song, how Toby called it the dead dog or something. Yeah, that, that it was based off would that make song. sense. Yeah. And just that whole setup of the beat, like them in the van and like how hot it is and everyone's like sweaty and sticky is so disgusting to me. Like I hate being sweaty and like hot. So that already had me feeling so gross when I was rewatching it. I was just like, why am I watching this? What's interesting about the whole van sequence is that they were actually driving. They, they obviously were an independent shoot and they talk about how, why didn't we choose to like just halt the van and not drive it and just pretend like we're driving like you would. They didn't know any better because they were coming off film school and the cinematographer was like 23 years old and he even talks about how if you notice the windows are hot, meaning that they're overexposed. So you can't even see outside the window, see the motion. So they could have been like, oh, let's just pause the van and pretend like we're driving because you can't even see outside the windows. But they, like I said, they didn't know any better. And so they just sort of did it for real. And so the driver, I forget the actor's name, he was getting pissed off because it was hot and he just needed to keep driving. But Toby Hooper also brings up that them actually driving in the heat added to the the characters and that they couldn't really fake it not being hot where you could have directed them if it wasn't hot be like oh pretend it's hot it's, it's not the same franklin takes a piss now i had talked about how toby hooper was glad to kill off franklin but this was the beginning where you could really see his character be and i get it that he's in a wheelchair and you should really feel bad for him i get that but at the same time he's over the top annoying but at the same time it sort of sells his character the green ford van that the teenagers are in that was actually the van of ted nicolaus who was a sound recordist and so they basically had two production vans if you want to call them that but one of them was going to be the main van and then the other one was going to be the gaffer van the gaffer van is basically where you put all the lighting equipment all the electric equipment and the sound equipment and so they voted that the smaller van would be the the Ford green van that was Ted's. So they basically had to settle for the smaller van to be the actual van that were the were the teenagers uh, drive in. Speaking of the scene where Franklin goes to pee, that was actually Paul's last scene. Oh, really? And there had been so much. This is after all the money issues were kind of happening because a lot of the actors opted to like defer their payments. They had kind of had it up to this point. So Paul was like, if you want me to shoot the scene where I fall down the hill, you're going to have to pay me or else you can find some other chubby guy to throw off the hill. And he says that in that scene where he's falling off the hill in his pocket of his shirt is the check that they gave him. Really? Yeah. Wow. So he's like me rolling down the hill. There's a check in my pocket. We move on to the cemetery 
Now, this is essentially the premise of the film in that they're trying to go, they're trying to find Sally's grandfather's headstone. And that's where the backstory sort of begins. This is where Toby Hooper begins to mention how the original rating that he wanted for Texas Chainsaw was PG. And which is insane. Even now, like if you were to make a movie like Texas Chainsaw, it's like, oh yeah, it's just going to be a PG rating. PG and have the word massacre in the title. And so the deal was originally to the uh, MPA, which is the Motion Picture Association of America, is that they could give him a PG rating, but he would have to cut out a lot of blood and essentially show no blood at all, which of course didn't happen. And so the movie initially got an X rating by the censors, but then they lowered it down. They had to recut a few things and they, they, he was able to lower it down to an R rating. If you think about Texas Chainsaw, there isn't that much blood really in it. There's only a few scenes where there is blood, but one of the talks is that people have this false memory of it where they think, oh, it's so bloody and it's like over the top. And even fans have kind of gone up to Toby Hooper saying, dude, the special effects are so incredible. And like, why can't they make movies like that? And he's like, oh, they're incredible because there are no special effects. It's all practical. A lot of the blood is fake, but is it isn't like an Evil Dead film where there's like just a plethora of tons of blood everywhere. And I think that's sort of the hidden genius behind the film is that it makes you think one thing, but it's really something completely different. And it's a lot simpler than what your imagine sort of takes you to. And I think that's what makes it scarier is that a lot of the scenes with kills don't exactly show you what's happening. So you kind of imagine it and that makes it freakier. And like you were saying about the MPAA, um, Toby was pretty much calling them the whole time he was trying to edit the movie, trying to be like, hey, I have this scene where we hang someone from a hook. Like, how can I get that in the movie and have it pass the ratings? Right. And they were like, "Okay, well, you can't show like the penetration on the hook. And so it was just like stuff like that where he kept calling them and being like, this is the scene I want to shoot. How can I edit it to where I can get away with the rating? A lot of give and take. We're trying to find that line. The following scene is like those shots of like the cows, which watching it, were you unsettled with like those shots at all? No. Gunner was. (laughs) Because he says that those shots of the cows were the creepiest thing that he had ever seen. And also having not been part of that part of the production... He didn't see it until obviously the final film. And he said, yeah, those shots of the cows were just very eerie. We get into the interior of the van, which is right before the hitchhiker. They decided to pick up the hitchhiker. And going back to what we were talking about, how they chose to actually shoot the van driving. The cinematographer talks about the way that he shot it. And so this film was shot in 16 millimeter, which you can see the grain, which bugs some people. but to me, I think it adds a really cool aesthetic to it. And the film stock that they were shooting at was really low uh, ASA. Now, what it what that means is like if you're shooting any type of film or even digital, there's a speed to the recording or the film speed. Meaning that, for example, if you're shooting low light, you want to shoot something at a high at ASA. So at least like 800 or above. And the same thing on a digital camera, it's ISO. And so you would shoot at, you know, 1600, whatever. This film was shot at 25. Ugh. 
that's why it's so grainy, especially yeah. a lot of the chase sequences mm-hmm. when they're in the forest. You can't see anything. It's super grainy. <laughs> so when I heard that about the cinematographer, I just really empathize with that because it's literally like impossible to shoot at night and not have it look grainy. And even the daylight stuff, you said that they had to use lights where normally you wouldn't need lights now. That's why the windows are so hot. They're blown out in the background. And it it gives you a reason of of why the film looks like the way that it does. Planets in retrograde. I caught that. Yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, because Pam's reading a book about constellations and like the Zodiac, right? Right. So she talks about, I think she talked about Sally's sign. Well, she says she's like a Capricorn or Aries or something. And she's like, Saturn is in retrograde. That means for you, like bad things are coming or something like that. And everyone else is like, do you really believe that stuff? So I thought that was kind of a funny bit. I had completely forgotten about that scene. I didn't remember it either. And I know that a lot of people out there really buy into it and shit is going bad. Oh, something's in retrograde. Mercury is always in retrograde. Right. This is Franklin's horoscope. Travel in the country long-range plans and upsetting persons around you can make this a disturbing and unpredictable day. The events of the world are not doing much to cheer one up. And then Sally's horoscope. Capricorn is ruled by Saturn. There are moments when we cannot believe that what is happening is really true. Pinch yourself and you may find out that it is. And so it's a setup to their bad luck that they're about to, to happen. Picking up hitchhikers. Good idea or bad idea? Bad idea terrible idea and i think back then it was fine it's very commonplace and i think movies like that like texas chainsaw massacre or you know real life events like the manson murders and just like stuff like that that kept happening really kind of drilled the fact that you shouldn't pick up random people on the road which i'm sure was really commonplace back then because that's how people got around like not everyone had a car right And, you know, in the hippie era and everything, that's how people got around. But I don't know if it was real life events that did it first or movies that just ruined it for us. But just instilling that fear that nobody had ever really thought about before. And now nobody picks up hitchhikers because of movies like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because you're like, what if this person I'm picking up is going to kill me? And going back to the original question that we said, is this the most influential? How many films after the fact had some kind of hitchhiker and... I mean, there's a film called The Hitchhiker. Moving in, when they pick up The Hitchhiker, there's a song playing throughout this whole sequence in the background, and it's called Fool for a Blonde. And it's one of the only songs, one of the only songs in the movie, because everything else is just like ambient noise. The writer, Roger Bartlett, was paid $50 for the song. And the reason they chose it was because of the juxtaposition of the song. The song is about being like in a cafe in Paris and just kind of looking at all the pretty women versus the scene of what's actually happening, which is the hitchhiker ends up like taking Franklin's knife and cutting his arm with it and like freaking everyone out. And so I thought having that song in the background makes that scene extra, extra creepy. Having researched this film and knowing what I know now, I never in a million years would think about this film showing us how bad capitalism is. And it really begins with The Hitchhiker. And if you think about where he's coming from, there's a scene before where Franklin is talking about how his grandfather, you know, made all this money as a um, basically killing cows and 
the way that they used to kill cows versus how they kill them now, where before they would like hit them with a sledgehammer and it was really gruesome. It was very manual, very personal. And then he brings up the scene where, oh yeah, now they have this like gun and it shoots them it's in like the, the brain. Cattle which, prod, right? Yeah, which totally took me to No Country Yeah, Man. of course. Brendo. <laughs> you have that imagery of before things were very personal and now they're very industrialized and just not connected with the person that's doing the job. And if you see what happens with the movie, you have the hitchhiker who comes from a family that used to be, have a business and now they're struggling to feed themselves. And <laughs> what do they have to, so you can argue that it's because of capitalism. Yeah. That leather totally exists. And Toby Hooper talks about that. He talks about, he doesn't say it so specifically, but he says like, there are certain moments and we'll get more to it as the movie comes along. But this was like the big moment where I had that revelation of like, holy shit. Like, yeah, kind of makes sense because I think the hitchhiker mentions it because the hitchhiker, that's his job or that was his job. He was the sledgehammer guy. And Franklin is like, isn't it better, though? Like now that they have like the gun, like they don't st suffer as much or something like that. And the hitchhiker's like, no, because now I don't have a job or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Right? And it's again, back to the impersonal that it isn't. Yeah. There's no connection there between the worker and, and the job yeah. that they're doing. When the hitchhiker is talking about using every part of the cow, it really made me want to be a vegetarian. Not me. No? No. You're just like more meat? Whatever. Bring it. <laughs> Bring it. True story. It made uh, Guillermo del Toro want to be a vegetarian. Did it really? After watching the film. I think if they weren't using every part of the cow and it was going to waste, then I would have more feelings about it. But the fact that he's like, no part of the cow goes to waste. Like we use everything. I'm just like, okay, well then that cow's life was not at vain. Dude, but there's obviously <laughs> parts that you wouldn't want to eat or I'm not going to eat them. Eat. I'm not saying I'm going to eat them. Yeah, but when I'm you just buy, someone is when you buy them. chorizo, that's fine. It's delicious. Chorizo is delicious. Isn't chorizo pork? Dude, but there's like lips, whatever and assholes. It's good. It's delicious. I don't care. We get to the point where the hitchhiker takes Franklin's photo and that's where like the weirdness really begins if you haven't already felt the weird vibes. And so he's using a Polaroid camera and he takes Franklin's photo and then Franklin's like, yeah, this, you can't even see me. And then he like burns it and then he grabs, I think his knife, right? Yeah. And then he basically cuts like Franklin's arm. Yeah. And that's when everyone freaks the fuck out and then he jumps out. I love how the van is moving so goddamn slow. Yeah, and when they just push like, him out. <laughs> the sounds that he's making with his, he's like spitting out air or like, I don't he's know. like he's, slurping he's and weird. like su being super weird. Do you think that thing on his face is like a scar or is it just like bl dry blood? Isn't it like a mole? That, that's what I'm saying. Like, is I it think a, it's mole a mole or yeah. is it just dry blood? From I think his it's other a victims? mole. After they kick the hitchhiker out, rightfully so, he also smears his blood all over the car. Do you think that's like a sign to the rest of the family or to Leatherface if they happen to see the van? That's what I thought. Right? I thought he's leaving his mark and that we need to get these. He's marked them. Yeah, basically. exactly. Because like Franklin goes nuts about like, are we being chased? He's super paranoid. Yeah, and he's like, is that his blood on my knife? Or is it a symbol? Does it mean something? Yeah, yeah. So what I took from it is that it's a mark to let Leatherface yeah. that they're coming since they're in that, I thought that, in that too. same area. Once they kick him out, they stop at the gas station where there's no gas. 
And it's a real gas station. It's in Bastrop, Texas. And now it's, I think recently they opened it up as like an Airbnb type thing where you can stay there. They have like cabins you can stay at. Nice. Before that, it was just a gas station barbecue restaurant. And it's like a horror memorabilia store now. So you can get barbecue. You can spend the night. You can buy horror stuff. Did you get a feeling the first time you watched it that they were in on it? Or did you think he was just the some gas- random gas station? Oh, man? I thought it was just a random yeah, that's gas what I station guy. After the gas station, they finally get to grandpa's place, which is Sally and Franklin's grandfather. Um, this abandoned house, which is like, of course, teenagers trying to find abandoned housing. And yeah, what could possibly go wrong? And so they get there. And I feel like that's where like Franklin even gets more sad and more annoying. That scene of Frank... I hate that scene. He's so annoying. They're inside the house and they're kind of like going through doorways and stuff like that. And then there's the part where like there's that close up of the spiders coming out, uh, which they had found not at that specific house, but somewhere else. And they took a footnote of like, maybe we should reshoot that later and, and capture it. And so they went back to that house wherever they found it and were like, oh, yeah, it's still there. And so Ew, they were able to grab so it. It was a real spider. On a pickup, yeah. I hate it because like I don't normally hate spiders. Like I'm fine about spiders. But just the fact that they're so close together and you can't really tell what it is. Daddy long legs. And the sound. It reminds me of the shining spider sound that they use in the shining. Yeah. It's very similar. Just that put together and the slow close up is just, like it's disgusting. And speaking of the sound, sound is probably one of the best characters in this film. And it's something I feel like that smaller movies, kind of like te- like Texas Chainsaw, sort of forget. But I think Toby Hooper knowing, and he actually edited a lot of the sounds or recorded a lot of the sounds. They're all metallic. They're very ambiance. Um, and I think before that, hadn't really been done in a film like that. And so the fact that Toby Hooper was aware of that sound was going to be a big character in it really adds to like all the horrible scenes. And, and like I said, where a lot of productions forget about sound and just think like, uh, it's whatever, like it's not that important. I think it's a, it's a really huge character in this film. And, And like I said, when it's moments of a lot of tension, it really adds to what's happening. Going back to Franklin, there's a scene where he finally gets into the house and he's having a terrible time and he's just like, doesn't he say like, I'm having a wonderful time. He's like, blah, blah. And like, yeah, because he's, he can hear them giggling. And so he's just like, hee, hee, hee. oh, I hate it. But it's so good. I know, but it's I hate so it. good. The <laughs> delivery is just yeah. so spot on. Once we leave grandpa's house, we then move on to, well, we're still at grandpa's house, actually. It's Pam and Kirk. Ask Franklin about a, like a swimming hole. A watering hole. Yeah. And he's like, oh, can you tell us where it is? And he's like, yeah, it's whatever. And find he tells the him pathway. And yeah. So they go out looking for it. And that's how they find the Leatherface house or the family's house. And the real house is a Queen Anne. That's the style of the house. And it's been, rest- it's no longer in the same spot. It's been restored and it's in Kingsland, Texas now. Now it's actually a really nice looking restaurant and it's called the Grand Central Cafe. So they've restored it. It looks amazing now and you can go visit it. The interior, like the areas inside are still the same pretty much. So you can kind of tour the house and be like, this is where the kitchen is with the dinner scene. This is where they found all the bones and the feathers and stuff. So the original owner before it was rehouses a restaurant, the original owner's name was Smokey. 
And so when they began shooting inside the Leatherface house, they had shot, I think, for like two days. And then Smokey goes up to the cinematographer and he says, so are you guys done now? <laughs> and they had actually scheduled to shoot for another two weeks. And the, the DP started laughing. He's like, dude, we're here for two weeks, not just like two days. And so the, the owner literally thought like, oh, yeah, it's just just shoot. Yeah, for two and the days owner and was done. like some like hippie guy, right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Where he had no information of how to shoot a movie or yeah. anything like that. Once we get into Pam and Kirk finding the house, Kirk goes inside first because I think as they're walking up, they hear the generator. And so they're like, maybe if they have a generator, they have gas. So Kirk goes into the house and is like, hey, anybody here? And this is when we get our first kill. A lot of the bones and the dead carcasses that are found inside the house were provided by a local veterinarian. And basically, she would shoot them with formaldehyde and basically give them to the crew. And there was one instance where she was, I think it was like a leg of a calf or something like that, where she was injecting it with formaldehyde and had it on her leg. And she overshot and shot herself with formaldehyde. Yeah, I did hear about that in one of the behind the scenes stuff. And she was kind of freaking out like, oh my God, am I going to go stiff? Is this going to go to my heart? Am I going to die? Ultimately, nothing happened. But at that point, she was like, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. When Kirk dies, that's the first kind of time we see Leatherface. Because he just kind of comes out from behind the door behind Kirk and hits him in the head with the sledgehammer. And that death is one of the only things I one of the few things I remember from my first watch because of what he does after he gets hit in the head with a sledgehammer. He like falls down and he starts like convulsing almost, which is really disturbing to watch. And Toby Hooper talks about that. That had never been seen in a movie and it's real. It's like, that's what would actually happen would to happen? your body. If you get hit in the head with a blunt object, you start spazzing out. And that's what shocked a lot of people too. So originally Leatherface Gunner was supposed to just kind of gently hit him. But he, once he put the mask on and the whole getup, which by the way, was like incredibly hot. And he talks about that multiple times where a lot of the crew, they would take breaks. And this was shot in the middle of the summer in Texas. He wasn't able to take the mask off because they thought that continuity wise, they would fuck it up or like mishandle it. And so they would take these like five minute breaks and anything beyond five minutes, they could actually take the mask off. But because they basically would just take all these small little breaks, he would never take the mask off. And eventually all the sweat created this odor and no one wanted to be around him at yeah. all during and like dinner and lunch breaks. Yeah. As you're talking about that, the outfit that he wears, actually the outfit that everyone wears, all their clothes, most notably Sally and Leatherface because they're the ones in the movie the longest. They had to wear the same clothes for five weeks because especially with Leatherface's like suit that he wears, they didn't want it to change color or like the blood stains to go away or anything like you were saying continuity. So Gunner was in that for five weeks without changing which i'm sure like he showered but if the smell is on the clothes like you were saying nobody wanted to be near him so he knocks out kirk and then he like closes that thing and then pam is outside and can we talk about the greatest shot in the whole fucking movie that is movie? so good so the way that they got that shot we're talking about the tracking shot under the the swing chair and going into the house the way they got that was the production team only had 40 feet of dolly track which isn't that much and so you see these signature shots where they're like tracking the actors and you can see them when they're going to the watering hole. There's like that tracking shot when they're going to eventually to the Leatherface house. 
when they were about to shoot that tracking shot and originally was not storyboarded. So that was one of the things on the day of that they just saw that setting and said, ooh, this would be a really cool shot. And Toby Hooper and the cinematographer were like, we got to get this shot. But it was met with a lot of opposition by the production team because the production team was like, literally, we have X amount of days to shoot this, stick to the storyboards and we got to keep it moving. But the setup of setting up the track was going to be very involved. And so when they went up to the producers and said, we want to get the shot, they're like, no, we're not going to do it. We got to keep moving. The cinematographer and Toby Hooper like, no, it's going to be a really amazing shot. And they actually came to a standstill and were literally saying, if we don't get the shot, you can fire us. And it basically got to a big standstill where they could potentially have been fired and it became this big hoopla. And finally, they were able to strike a deal with the producer and said, it's not going to take that long. Let's just fucking shoot it. And to me, it's one of the most iconic shots in in the whole film. That whole sequence really is kind of iconic shot after shot after shot because you have Leatherface dragging Kirk in and then shutting the door, which is another scene everyone remembers. And then you have Pam walking up to the house, which is another scene people talk about. And then once she gets into the house... She sees Leatherface and tries to run out of the house. And then you have that shot of him grabbing Pam from behind and dragging her back into the house, which is another re- really recognizable scene in the movie. So the first time they ran that sequence where he grabs Pam, he actually, Gunner, had these three-inch boots, which actually made him even taller than he really was. And so when he ran through the doorframe, he hit his forehead on the doorframe and knocked himself out. And so they had a re- you know, he wakes up and is like, okay, we got to redo it again. And so you can actually see him kind of be very like crouching, crouchy yeah. and like subtle as he like goes through the door frame when the final version of the, of that shot. And before Pam runs out, we have the, also that scene where she discovers the room that's got like chicken bones and like all this like feathers and there's a chicken in a cage. Which that chicken in the cage would fall asleep often on the set. Aww. And so a little <laughs> fast forwarding, it's a scene where he's like, where the fuck are these kids coming from? And he yeah. goes out the window. Yeah. He's running towards the window and the cage is right there. And he hits it because Toby Hooper's like, we got to get the chicken to be more <laughs> reactive and not fall asleep. And so Gunner talks about how he consciously remembers to hit the cage as he looks through the window. <laughs> uh, but I think that that's just really overall, funny. that's like a really funny scene. Yeah. But how about being hung like Pam? Would you rather be hung like Pam or just be... Tex, Texas have, chainsawed up like uh, oh god like Kirk. Kirk. Well, Kirk was hit in the head first and knocked out. Yeah, so I think I'd rather have that happen and then be chainsawed while I'm so not be hung, not be hung on by your back. Yeah, that scene is really cool because you don't see anything happen. You just kind of see the hook. You see Pam. He hangs her, and just her reaction is so visceral that it's really good. In the remake, you do see the hook go in. That was a difficult thing to get because the actress that plays Pam is wearing like hardly anything that can hide any sort of wiring or a vest or something. So they had to figure out how to outfit her so that she could be hung on the on the thing. And so what they ended up doing was they made like a saddle, almost like a chastity belt looking thing. And they lined it with pads, like sanitary pads so that it would, you know, provide comfort for her. And then they did nude stockings and they crisscrossed it like across her chest and across her back. And that's kind of what they used to hang her up. And she could only be hung up for a minute at a time. Yeah, because, because it of was that. the, the way. It yeah. was pretty much janky right. is what it was. When Leatherface turns on the chainsaw, that's a live chainsaw with a real belt. 
And so doing it live, the chainsaw was like three inches away from Kirk's face. And actually Gunner tells the actor who played Kirk, if you fucking move, I'm going to really cut you. Yeah. So you need to be absolutely still or else this is not going to be very good. That to me is insane that they were using a live chainsaw and like not a dummy, not, you know, yeah, I another had, way to do it. I had read that the prop guy, like they didn't, they weren't very experienced. So instead of, you know, I'm in a normal production, you would probably have 10 different chainsaws, one without teeth, one with teeth, a rubber one, you know, so-and-so. And they only had one. So they had to like remove the teeth from it most of the time. I think the only time it had teeth in was when Leatherface like chainsaws through the door, obviously. But everything else, the teeth were removed. But still, like when you think of when I think of chainsaws with the teeth removed, they're still scary because like yeah, I go to haunts and that's what they have. And they're real chainsaws. You can smell the gas when it's like up close to your face. During early screenings of the movie, this was the point where people walked out. Who yeah. Were not into it. The meat hook. The meat hook and then the, again, like you were talking about how you don't really see Kurt getting, you know, chopped up, but it's the imagination that sort of drives yeah, that scene. Yeah, and you get Pam's reaction too. Exactly. The next scene is where Sally, Jerry, and Franklin are wondering what happened to their other counterparts. And it's really fucked up because Franklin is pretty paranoid at this moment. Yeah. And where he's questioning about, you know, the blood on the van and like, do they follow us? Do they know who we are? Et cetera, et cetera. And Cherry keeps telling Franklin that they're coming after him. They're going to kill him, like straight to his face. Uh, so I thought that was a little fucked up. And so that leads to Jerry going to the Leatherface house to search for everyone else. And then he ends up getting killed. The actor that plays Jerry was blindfolded when they let him into the house. Just so he wouldn't see what Gunner looked like. In the Leatherface, because a lot of the actors didn't see Gunner as Leatherface. The moment where Jerry goes into the house and there's that shot of when he sees Leatherface for the first time, yeah. he, that was that, that was the first genuine. time. And it's, he looks fucking terrifying. Yeah, he does. It's so good. Yeah, it's really good. And Gunner talks about how when he like hits him over the head and stuff like that, that he was literally trying to get out of there yeah like, because he was so terrified of the outfit and, and the the mask on, on yeah Gunner. i would be terrified and then after once he kills jerry we see leatherface kind of like remorseful maybe because he kind of like sits and he just like puts his head in his hands and he's just like oh my god these fucking kids yeah and that's the scene where he run where i was talking about yeah. where he runs to the window to me that scene is like <laughs> where the fuck are all these kids yeah, coming from how do they find coming. us he does have that moment next like, to the I window where he's like, I'm conflicted, but yeah. I'm also hungry. But I'm and also that's crazy. Like, and the teeth yeah, I, were made by his dentist, custom made. And they have these like little like, I don't know, like they're like little fangs. With they're the like jagged. Tooth. Yeah, they're yeah. jagged. We get to nighttime and you have um, Sally and Franklin. And I feel like this is where their actual angst, because they didn't like each other in real life, really comes out. And it's really like forced and like, when they're going back and forth with the flashlight. That scene goes on forever. forever. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. And like you were saying, this was really kind of the tipping point of their anger, or at least uh, Marilyn Burns' anger right. with Paul. And Gunner is the one that brings that up that where he's like, yeah, I was there on set and they didn't seem to really like each other. Or at least what Marilyn says that when the actor who played Franklin was method 
and being Franklin all the time that it was just she was not. Which about also it. He, the the reason he was doing that was because he wasn't experienced in movies. He was experienced in the stage stage productions. Oh, okay. And when you do stage productions, I guess that's what they would do is just exactly. not break character. So he was just trying. He was just doing what he knew. And but I mean, I guess it worked at the end. We get to the forest and you have poor Sally pushing Franklin on the wheelchair, which is that sucks. Not just in the movie aspect of it, but in real life. Yeah. I'm sure what a pain in the ass that was to push him like through like uneven ground and all of that. This buildup to me when Franklin gets killed is so well done. And Hooper talks about how the buildup is there. And then you get to the point where you see Leatherface kind of jump out. The editing there to me is brilliant because what Hooper does is that he cuts a frame before the audience expects something to happen. So for example, like you see the wheelchair and he's there, he's like yelling out to, to the rest of the, the, his members of like, where are you guys? Whatever. And so rather than seeing all of Leatherface, he cuts a frame before you could really tell what's happening. And then you see the cut of like him pulling out with the chainsaw and, and cutting Franklin up. And so the way that he cuts it is not in the way that you would expect it. And so it makes it that more shocking and more, um, uneven. And I think you see that even in previous of the film where they're back at um, Sally's grandfather's house and you see them kind of walking down the stairs towards Franklin and it's chopped up in a way where you feel like something bad's going to happen, but nothing does happen. So it's kind of like a fake out. Leatherface jumping out actually got me this time I was watching it because I just wasn't wasn't ready for it. And it happened. I was just like, oh, my God. And leading up to that, they're in the dark and it's so like discombobulating because you're trying to make out Sally and you're trying to make out Franklin and everything's so grainy like you were talking about. And then all of a sudden you just get Leatherface jumping in your face. So, yeah, like you said, I thought that was really well done. A lot of it is hidden because the camera's behind Franklin. So you don't actually see um, Leatherface carving him up. And again, the inspiration behind that is Hitchcock, Psycho the shower scene and how a lot of people remembered, Oh, you could see the knife going into her, but you never ever see it. And there is blood that splatters on Leatherface. And the way that they got that is like Toby Hooper and one of the production designers filled their mouths up with blood. And so they're literally physically spitting Spitting it out at Leatherface, um, which is, but apparently it tasted delicious, whatever. Maybe it was like the weird corn syrup one. Cause I've had fake blood in my mouth and it's disgusting. Really? Like the blood capsules, they taste like, they're nasty. Marilyn was a slow runner. And so after Franklin Same. gets killed, Gunner talks about how he deliberately had to like stop and then start chopping part <laughs> of the forest with the chainsaw because Marilyn was just slow that he would just catch up to her yeah. so easily. And so a lot of those scenes leading up back to the Le- Leatherface house, you see him taking these weird pathways. <laughs> it's like that, zigzagging. Yeah. And so it's like one of those critiques where you see a horror movie and you're like, Oh my God, they're so slow. Yeah. Like, why is he like being, well, it's because the actors maybe aren't that fast. That's funny. And it was also another thing where those three foot boots that he was wearing were so unwieldy that he would fall a lot of the times. And so a lot of the times where he d- does have to take a curved pathway, he's overdoing it because he doesn't want to trip and fall, fall because it was just, it was, those boots were just completely unwieldy. We get back at the gas station in Maryland. Sally has that moment where she runs through and I literally falls on her knees. 
that's actual payment. She didn't have any padding on her knees. And they did that 17 oh, times. God. So it really fucked up her knees. Yeah. And I think that's another reason why she had trouble running. Yeah. Is that just her knees were all messed up. You hear the radio in the background when she realizes that, oh, that's just not barbecue. That's fucking human parts. People. They're in Muerto County, oh, which Muerto means dead in Spanish. The cook comes in and basically seems like a really cool guy. Like she's like he's about to rescue her. And, she, and he's like, oh, we don't have a phone. Like we have to go to the next county yeah. over. He flips on a dime and you find out that he's part of the cannibals. To me, it's funny when he starts hitting her with a broom. I was like, what is going on? And then when the broom breaks, is he like stabbing her or is he just like just hitting her when with she's the broom? in the car or both i think he's just hitting her with the like the the, the back end of the broom yeah. and then when she's in the car he's poking her with something yeah, yeah i just got confused whether or not when the broom broke uh-huh. the handle whether it was like edgy and he no, was I like, think it was like shanking her with it no i think it was like the blunt end okay maybe so we do get to that scene where he puts her in the car there's a moment where he gets into the truck and he's about to take off, but he realizes that he leaves the light on oh. and he gets out of the truck so and he says, off. but the line that he has is something about like, oh, you know, I can't afford to pay these bills. And, you know, the man's going to get me if yeah. I don't turn the light off. That's another nudge of these people were a successful business back in the day when things were when you had oil mm-hmm. and when you had, you know, the independent business could survive. But now that the bear companies have taken over. They've really destroyed all these small businesses. And that's, I think, a representation of that. We get back to the Leatherface house. He drives up to the house and you see the hitchhiker like in the headlights. And being weird. Being weird. <laughs> and then he grabs the thing and is like hitting him. And was like, why are you going to the, the grave robbering? And why are you doing this and that and whatever? But it's that desperation of like, they're broke. They don't have any money. They don't know what else to do with themselves. And, and I think he has a dead armadillo, right? That he's like dangling or he's I like, oh, so. I he's got like, food. I found, yeah. And that's where like there's a lot of slapstick. And Toby Hooper talked about how the original version of this film was going to be more of a satire and not really taken seriously. It was going to be a black comedy. And a lot of that slapstick stuff is the black comedy. And a lot of the audience didn't realize that it was a thing until many years later. That it was supposed to be funny. That it was supposed to be a little bit funny. And even um, when they were writing the script... Kim Hankel and Toby Hooper, when they would write something that they would make each other laugh, that's when they were knew that they were onto something. And so that scene specifically really makes me think of like Three Stooges and just like slapstick funny. We enter the house. I never really understood why Leatherface's looks changed until Toby Hooper described on how Leatherface's mask changes to his situation. So when you see him in the beginning, when he's like killing the bodies, he's wearing like a clean Leatherface. And then when you get to this scene, the leather face has makeup and he's like a woman. He's yeah. like the mom. the mom. He's the caretaker of, of them. And he even has the wig. And even the way when the cook is saying like, what are you doing? And and he ha- he make he makes those pig squeals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems very like the mother of the family. And so I never really got it until hearing Toby Hooper talk Which about that. I guess Gunner was supposed to have more actual dialogue. And Toby was just like, no, you're just going to make sounds. Inaudible. And Gunner was just kind of mad about it. Really? He was like, you're just making me grunt. Going back to the scene where Leatherface hacks into the door with his chainsaw. 
how earlier I was saying that was like the only time where the chainsaw actually had teeth. So that day, someone had made brownies for the team. And because everyone was like starving, everyone was like eating them up. And Toby's mom came to visit Seth that day. So whoever made the brownies was like, put the brownies away, put the brownies away. Because they were pot brownies. Oh, really? And Gunner had never smoked pot before. Like he had never experienced it. So he was filming the scene while he was high off of pot brownies. And he was freaking out because he was dizzy and hot and had this chainsaw, basically. We get to the dinner scene. And production-wise, it was the hottest day of the shoot when they filmed it. And it didn't help that they had to black out all the windows because they obviously shot it. It's supposed to be at night, but they shot it during the day. But you can't have light seeping through. So blacking out all the windows just made it that much hotter. This is where I really learned something that I had no idea was a thing. Do you guys know what head cheese is? I did not. It's basically a cold cut that is a terran or meat jelly often made with flesh from the head of a calf or pig or less commonly a sheep or cow, and often set in an aspect that originated in Europe. Combined with the hottest day of the year, you black out the windows. The smell got so bad that you had people puking outside of windows. They had a medic that was giving them Dramamine for the nausea. And essentially the DP was like, yeah, I puked out of the windows a few times. I don't know what you guys did to deal with it, but it was fucking terrible. And then Gunner talks about, oh, yeah, imagine having all that nausea, but you have a mask. Yeah. And you got to hold it in. And the stench just got really stuck in his outfit. And that's when people were avoiding him. Like, I'm not going to talk to him during lunch. Like, it was just, it got really bad. And I think one of the only people that didn't throw up is Jim, the guy that plays the cook. Because he was like, yeah, I saw people like throwing up out of the windows and stuff. He was like, I wasn't that sick, but, you know, everyone else was. Yeah. So you have Sally tied up in the chair and she's gagged and then they bring in grandpa, which by the way, the very first time I saw this film, there was a previous scene where Sally goes up before she jumps out the window. I thought that grandpa was like a dummy. I did not think that there was a human being inside of that. And I think the guy that's under there is like 20 or something, right? His name is John Dugan. He was 18 years old and it took eight hours to put him in makeup. And they only did it once because John was like, I am not sitting in that chair for eight hours to do this again. More than once. And so basically they had to shoot him out. Shoot him out is basically one and done where they shoot all his scenes and then he's out of the film, which caused the dinner time sequence. They shot for 27 hours to not only just finish the film, finish that scene, but to shoot John Dugan out, which to me, I would have been like, dude, later. I'm not going to shoot for 27 hours. Fuck that. Even on a small film like that, That's just completely unfair to everyone else. Totally. That's insane. So they bring in grandpa and this is where they force Sally to like stick out her hand and then Leatherface is going to cut into Sally and then that becomes the super gross scene where like grandpa starts sucking on her finger, which is completely disgusting. Disgusting. How that was supposed to happen is that Gunner had a plastic, a dull knife with a piece of tape on the bottom so as to not to really cut her. And they had a tube of blood that's supposed to mimic um, Gunner cutting her but every time they did it the tube of blood would get stuck it would not produce any blood and so about the fifth take Gunner at this point is losing his mind because it's so hot they're shooting 27 hours a day and the rest of the crew starting to, to feel crazy and so what he does without telling anyone he takes the tape off the knife 
and actually cuts Sally for reals. And so that scene in the final version is actual blood. And that's her react- real reaction of getting cut up. Yeah, and I read face. that Dugan didn't even know that it was actually her nope. blood until after. And then he said it was kind of erotic when he found out. And I was like, what? ew. Yeah. I did not hear that in the commentary, I, but even Toby Hooper didn't know. Like in the commentary, they're like, wow, I'm finding out all these weird oh things God. about this film that I had no idea <laughs> when we were shooting it. After they have grandpa kind of sucking on Sally's finger, that's when they start really getting at her with, I think it's like the mallet. They start yeah. like telling the grandpa to hit her and he can like barely hold the mallet and he keeps dropping it. And so I think the cook and Leatherface are like helping him like hit Sally with the the the, the sledgehammer, or the rubber mallet or whatever. And when they were doing it, I guess at first they were kind of like not really hitting her. I mean, it was a rubber mallet, but still they weren't really hitting her because they didn't want to. Jim, Jim Sito, Sito, who plays the cook, was like, I didn't want to hit her. Like, I, I didn't want to hit her. But I guess after a while, you know, Toby was like, it just looks like you're not hitting. Like, it looks, doesn't look Fake. real. And so Marilyn was just like, you know what? Just hit me. Like, it's totally fine. And after a while, like, Jim started really getting into it and started hitting her and was saying that after, like, eight or so takes of him just, like, beating the crap out of her, Toby was like, okay, we got it. And then Marilyn just, like, fainted. Because she had been beat up so much. The escape. So after that scene, they hit Sally over the head with it. And she manages to escape. And then not only breaks through one window, but breaks through two windows to get out of there. And all I can think of is when she's all bloodied, I can think of Carrie. Which came after the fact. So I think Brian De Palma definitely saw this film and said, I'm going to copy this for Sissy Spacek. Yeah, and I guess... The part where she jumps out of the window, originally Marilyn was like, I'm just going to jump out of the window. Like, I'm just going to jump out of the window. But I guess they shot it in two takes where it's like her jumping through the window and then the landing. They had to like pull her up in like a harness of some sort, like maybe eight or 10 feet off the ground and then drop her so she would stick that landing. And when they were interviewing her, she's like, I'm, I would have rather just jumped out of the window because it was scarier to be hung up and then right. just like dropped. Yeah. And she did bust her ankle a little bit when she lands. And that's why when she's limping later, when she's running away from Leatherface, that's like a real limp that she got from that jump. You notice on the exterior of the house that she's like limping and, and uh, the hitchhiker's going after it's all cloudy. Yeah. They had to wait for the clouds to come in for three hours because it's supposed to be the morning after. Oh, yeah. Like and dawn. if it would have just been like dawn, they wouldn't have had enough light because mm-hmm. again, they're shooting with the really slow film. And so the clouds create nice diffusion and kind of gives you that warm. And again, uh, Sally being a slow runner in real life, they're both sort of like, yeah trying to slow down to give her enough space to run away. They mostly shot this film in order. So how you see the film is kind of how they shot it. And so this is towards the end of of the film shoots. And like we were saying, this day was a 27-hour shoot day. It was incredibly hot. Um, The crew just wanted to be done with the fucking film. Everyone was just over it. And there's a point where they're waiting to do a setup and... Gunner is just sitting out there in the sun. It was 110 degrees. And his mind is just like gone. Yeah. Like he doesn't even know what he's doing anymore. He starts believing that he is Leatherface. <laughs> like for real. It's like he talks God. about how the scene previous where they're trying to hit her. Yeah. And he thinks he's like, I need to kill Sally. Yeah. For reals. But then he like snaps out of it. One of the producers, Jay Parsley, 
sees Gunner just zoning the fuck out. And he says, hey, Gunner, come to my car. And he had a Buick car. And in the back of the trunk, he opens it and there's a case full of Lone Star beer. And so he tells Gunner, grab two beers. He puts them in the passenger seat, cranks the AC. And he's like, drink the beers. And then they went for a ride, (laughs) just like in the AC. And that kind of got Gunner back into the swing of things. We get to the shot where uh, the hitchhiker gets run over by the uh, Black Maria, which do you know why it's called Black Maria? No. That was Thomas Edison's production studio, which is considered the first film production studio. But it's not Black Maria. It's Black Mariah. Oh, but it's spelled like Maria? Yeah. Okay. So the way they shot that scene where the hitchhiker gets run over is they did it backwards. So instead of the semi going towards the hitchhiker, it's actually going going away away just to make it that much uh, safer for the actor. Yeah. But that's how they were able to do it. And obviously there's like a dummy that they run over and all that. So the hitchhiker is taken out and then you have Leatherface going after Sally. And there's a scene where he tries to go after with the uh, the chainsaw and then he like falls and then like cuts his leg. Oh, yeah. Open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How they did that was that he had a metal plate and then above that had a piece of meat. Ooh, so he's actually it cutting into like the it, yeah. piece of meat. But apparently the heat of the chainsaw was so high that he could actually feel the burn. And so when Gunner did it, he thought he actually cut into his leg. Yeah. I hear him that much. And the limp that he has is him, him thinking. thinking that he actually cut into <laughs> his leg. And also the the driver of the Black Maria. <laughs> so random. He like, like Sally gets in the truck, right? And then Leatherface comes around and the driver's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and like jumps out and he just ends up like running away. And he has, all he has is a wrench. Yeah. 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 I thought that was so random. So we get to the random truck that Sally kind of hails down and she, she sort of jumps in the back of the truck. And that was another moment where Gunner said she was so slow to get on top of the truck. And like, like, I had to like be like in slow motion almost. <laughs> and that's why it kind of looks a little bit weird. Yeah. Where he's just sort of standing. He's like just standing wielding. around the, yeah, the truck. Um, and that was to do that. To me, that reaction of Sally isn't very satisfactory. Like she gets away, but it's, she's almost a maniacal laugh of like, I am traumatized for life. Yeah. Like, and, I'm never going to be able to get over this. The reason it's like that is because they had to shoot that twice. Like they had, they did the dinner scene, the end scene and Marilyn was just kind of cool. I never have to see these white pants again. Like I just burn all my clothes and they called her and were like, Hey, we didn't get it. Like you need to come back. And so she was saying that that ending is her actually reacting to the movie being over for reals. Because she had to go back and reshoot. Toby Hooper does mention that everyone hated him after the film of this movie. <laughs> just because of what he had to put him through and Absolutely, just yeah. what a pain in the ass it was. So I totally believe that that was her reaction. Going back to the analysis of the film, a lot of people read into that her reaction is what everyone felt like in America. That there was this not very good optimism after the Nixon administration. And that it's for it's sort of a kind of miserable optimism again mirroring what we're going through now and that she's sort of like uh the future is not gonna be that great (laughs) we get to the final shot and to me there's two iconic shots in the entire movie it's the tracking shot behind pam Mm -hmm. and it's this shot where totally it's actually sunset it's supposed to be sunrise but they actually got sunset and he's just going to town with the fucking chainsaw dancing with the chainsaw dancing with it and actually behind the scenes the dp 
at one point is running away from Gunner <laughs> because he didn't want to get fucking his head chopped off because yeah. it's again another live chainsaw. Toby Hooper's with a big ass cigar also like behind the camera trying yeah. to get out of the way. Yeah. And then another producer just dodging <laughs> the shit out of the 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 chainsaw. This was another real scene because Gunner was just so fed up of everything mm-hmm. and Toby that he, he was actually like- swinging at Toby and Toby ducked in one of the swings and that's kind of the inspiration for that last I believe it. Scene. But it's such a great shot and it's again the two shots that I think of when I think of this movie is those two shots. One of the things that really plagued the production other than budgeting, which was, I mean, it was always money was one of the things Um, besides budgeting. It was, you know, the actors getting paid. What the actors did is they waived their salaries, like I mentioned earlier, or they deferred payments. And Toby had kind of told them that they had a certain point system. They had a certain number of points of the production company what they were getting from it and then it turned out that that 0.5 percentage that the actors got was actually only worth 0.25 because they owned the actors owned stake in the company that owned stake in the movie so the company only owned 50 percent of the movie and the actors originally thought that their 0.5 was that but because they had a stake in the company that had a stake in the movie not the movie their percentage went down to 0.25 Jeez. So. Obviously, the cast was pissed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they're already pissed with the horrible shoot that it was. And now yeah, like, and they're I not going to get compensated. Gunner said that his first royalty check was like $40, which is like Jeez. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so a few months before the film was released, um, Louis Perano of Bryanston agreed to distribute the film worldwide because no one wanted to distribute this film, obviously, from which Bozeman and Scarin would receive a quarter of a million dollars and 35% of the profits. Years later, Bozeman, who was one of the executive producers, stated, we made a deal with the devil, and I guess that, in a way, we got what we deserved. They signed the contract with Bryanston, who essentially screwed them over. After the investors recouped their money with interest, uh, Scarin and the lawyers and the accounts were paid only $8,100. That was left to be divided among the 20 cast members and crew members, which is... Nothing. Eventually, the producers sued Brian Center for failing to pay them their full percentage at the box office. A court judgment instructed Brian Center to pay the filmmakers a half a million dollars, but by that time, the company had declared bankruptcy. So they basically had nothing. Yeah. In 1983, New Line Cinema acquired the distribution rights from Brian and gave the producers a large share of the profit. So it wasn't until 1983 that anyone started getting legitimate royalties from the film, which again, you're talking a decade after the fact that it was made. Um, so a lot of money was lost uh, in, in that respect. And going back to Bryanston, which I think they knew before they agreed to go into business with them, Joe and Lou Pirano were part of the Colombo crime family. They had gotten into the film business because of Deep Throat. They like extorted the film rights. And I think they knew this going in, but we're kind of just like, you know what? We really need the money. And so when it came time for them to try and sue them, they were just like, you wouldn't. We're in the mob. <laughs> like, how yeah. are you going to sue us? And that's the shitty thing about independent productions is that you, there's no fail safe. Like, you have to get the money where you can. Mm-hmm. And even if it's from, like, the, the mob, mob, whatever money that you can get to to make your vision happen. And that's but then when you get fucked over, you have nothing. So it's 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 a slippery slope. 
uh, for sure, especially in, in that time. For eight years after uh, Texas Chainsaw came out, it was annually reissued at First Run Theaters and it was promoted in full page ads. The film eventually grossed more than $30 million, but that's after being out for like years, which I think through inflation was like over $100 million. So it definitely made a huge profit, but it, it took a lot of time. It also made, when it came to rentals, it made $14.4 million, which made it the 12th highest grossing film initially released in 1974, despite its, its small budget. To Bryanston's credit, I know that they were like sketchy, but they did a really good job in marketing the movie. So the film screened uh, in October 74 in San Francisco. The reports came out that the audience got sick and that people threw stuff at the screen and wanted their money back, which wasn't true. But this is just like a marketing thing. It was kind of like the first instances of that kind of marketing that we saw like with The Exorcist where it was like people passed out with um, The Blair Witch Project, with Paranormal Activity, just like stuff like that that we keep hearing. The truth is that there was some politicians, including some city council members that had been invited to a screening of the taking of Pelham 123, mm -hmm. and they snuck in Texas Chainsaw as a second, like a double feature, a double bill. And when they saw it, they just like hated it and the press found out about it. And that's kind of how the word of mouth started. And it kind of became an overnight hit because of the marketing, especially because of the poster, because it says what happened is true. Like that's kind of the tagline. It's not really certain how many people saw it at first, but in the first four days in Texas, it grossed about $600,000. In San Francisco, Cinema Gores walked out of theaters in disgust. And in February 1976, two theaters in Ottawa, Canada were advised by local police to withdraw the film lest they face morality charges, which Jeez. is like, really? Morality? What the fuck <laughs> is that? Morality charges? Canada. It was banned for periods in many other countries, including Brazil, Chile, Finland, France, Iceland, Ireland, Norway, Singapore, Sweden, and West Germany. In Sweden, it would also symbolize a video nasty, a discussed topic at the time. A video nasty apparently is just like, you know, a horror movie, like a just okay. disturbing film, yeah. you know. Linda Gross of the LA Times called it despicable and described Hanko and Hooper as more concerned with creating a realistic atmosphere than with its plastic script. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said it was as violent and gruesome and blood-soaked as the title promises, yet praised its acting and technical execution. Donald B. Berrigan of Cincinnati Inquirer praised the lead performance of Burns, which I completely agree with. Marilyn Burns as Sally deserves a special Academy Award for one of the most sustained and believable acting achievements in movie history. Yeah. The amount of screaming and I terror cannot. Like the last that she 20 produces minutes, is screaming. incredible. Like up there with any scream queen. So now we talk about its influence and impact because that's the question that we're really asking. To me, it sort of paved the way for the slasher film as we know it now. And before that, you know, we did a lot of research to try to find films of that caliber and they really didn't exist. I mean, you talked about that Wes Craven film, Last but, on the left. but that film is all sorts of wrong and yeah. just not even in the same league as, as Leatherface. Um, or Texas Chainsaw. It also created, I would say, a big influence for Darth Vader and any kind of masked villain. Yeah. I mean, you think about what happened after the fact. You have Jason, you have Freddy Krueger, you have Mike Myers. All of them essentially a variation of Leatherface and they all have their weapons, you know? And before that, there wasn't really any of that that yeah. existed. 
And so it really paved the way for those films that came out in the 70s and the 80s. Wes Craven crafted his 1977 film The Hills Have Eyes as an homage to Texas Chainsaw. And even really Scott said that then inspired him to make Alien. Since we're talking about, you know, influential parts of the movie and trying to answer the question if it's one of the most influential horror movies, I think we've already established that it's one of the first slasher flicks and kind of influenced every other slasher movie since then because you have the mask, you have their weapon, you know. Also, one of the things that Texas Chainsaw Massacre did is establish the final girl because I think Sally is one of the first final girls, if not the first final girl. Um, when I was going back earlier talking about my sources, I mentioned a book called, uh, I think, Men, Women, and Chainsaw or something like that. The author of that, Carol Clover, made a book in 1987 called Her Body Himself, Gender in the Slasher Film. And that's the first instance we get of the term final girl being used. So I'm not 100% sure that she was the one that invented it, but that's the first instance of the final girl that we see mentioned. And she describes her as being the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and of her own peril. She is chased, cornered, wounded, whom we can see scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. So that's kind of what the final girl is. And, you know, when you have movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween, which are the first instances of final girls that we know, they start off as being catered towards young men because horror movies were catered towards young men. Then we didn't have this like renaissance of, you know, girls that love horror movies like we have now. So the final girl had to be appealing to men, which is why at first we get them like they're virgins. They're very quiet. Like they're not like the slutty friend they have that like dies. And that's why they survive. But then, you know, as we move on throughout the years and we get more women and women or female identifying people that really, really lean on horror, it's because of the final girl. So now the final girl has evolved to appeal to them. So, you know, when you have Sydney Prescott in Scream in 1994, she has sex and she still survives, you know, and then you have Grace in Ready or Not that just came out like last year. She's another final girl who also isn't like the regular final girl you would find, you know, like in Halloween. She's not virginal. She's not like polite. And she ends up surviving. the whole Yeah, movie. like not pure. Exactly. So like before where it was like, you can't be loud. You can't drink. You can't smoke. You know, you have to be a virgin. Now that's just kind of being thrown out the window because it's evolved. And now horror movies are being catered more towards women and female identifying people than before. And I think a lot of the reason why we gravitate so much towards horror is that horror isn't afraid to have a female up front and then not kill her. <laughs> like, you know, like they'll have a female main character and they'll have her survive, which I think is what appeals to so many women about right. horror. It's hard to summarize this film without talking about the end of the nuclear family and especially doing the research and now sort of seeing this movie in different light. To me, it's sort of beyond a slasher film. It really talks about, you know, the nuclear family being destroyed and you even have, you know, the hitchhiker talking about a bygone era when his grandfather worked at the slaughterhouse, killing cattle by hand and how it was, again, more personal and how everything just got industrialized. And they essentially left these people, you know, really far behind. To me, it's a pioneering film in that respect where, 
like we talked about how a slasher film really didn't exist beforehand. And now these tropes that are built up, you know, where you have the evil bad guy with a mask and a weapon, you know, uh, feeding off younger people. And again, this social commentary below it, it really upped my regard for this film where, like I said before, when I first watched it, I thought it was like a B movie, yeah, yeah. really low budget, really cheesy. Yeah. Uh, but deep down, there's a really, really deep thought behind every moment and all credit to Toby Hooper. And here's a question that I asked you is what separates a film like this versus a real B movie. Like to me, it's, there's a really fine line to me at the time, Texas Chainsaw could have been dismissed easily, but for whatever reason, it hit a nerve that yeah. people responded to you. What, what do you think that nerve is? At the time that it came out, you know, the summer of love had ended because of the Manson and murders, the end of Vietnam, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. like everyone was coming back and realizing that things aren't as perfect as they thought they were. And that's kind of, I think what the movie really kind of picks on is that you have these kids that are just going on a road trip. They're just trying to get to their grandpa and make sure that his grave hasn't been robbed. And they just get thrown in to this like nightmare. And I think that's what really rattled people is that the people doing the killing in the movie are other people. And because of the way things are, they have to be this way. So Angie, do you think Texas Chainsaw is the most influential horror movie slash slasher movie of all time? I think so, because it was, you know, like all the reasons we mentioned earlier, it was the first of its kind and it started a completely new genre of horror movies. Now, have there been ones recently that kind of redefined, redefined it further, um, you know, stacked on top of what Texas Chainsaw does? Yeah, probably. But I think because it was the first, then yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a reason it's still so popular. Yeah, it's like the godfather of slasher movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's totally. Like like what happened with Godfather. Yeah. Like every period movie looks exactly looks like, like the Godfather. Godfather. Yeah. With all the reasons that we gave, I totally think it's the most influential. And even for things that we didn't talk about, I'm sure there's a whole layer that we completely missed. Like every first movie of its kind, it struggles in the beginning and then gets a cult following and then becomes an instant classic. It's not a hit right away. As we do at the end of every episode, we like to pair the movie we covered with another movie so like a double bill double feature if you're watching it at a drive-in what movie would you pair it with and it doesn't have to correlate it could have one thing in common so you could do a double feature that's oh very obvious or maybe like a hidden gem i wanted to pick something that kind of had the same feeling and so mine also has a group of teenagers in a car traveling and they get stranded and then they start to die so I picked House of Wax, the 2005 version of House of Wax, because it has that same kind of feeling where I don't even know what town they stop in, but I have a feeling it's similar because everyone's sweaty and they get there and there's an abandoned gas station and there's like, you know, the doll maker that lives there. And yeah, so I picked House of Wax. When I found out that Texas Chainsaw was supposed to be a satire, this film clicked into mine and there's actually a scene of Texas Chainsaw in this film my pick is American Psycho. Nice. I think it pairs really well because American Psycho is also satire of the 80s. Also social commentary on excess, tons of money, yeah. tons of abuse of power, uh, all of that. And there's a, that great scene where Patrick Bayman's doing crunches and Texas Chainsaw's in the background for whatever reason. Yeah. 
and also a brilliant director, Mary Heron, I think did a brilliant job. And also a film that was very misunderstood when it came out. I think it still is. Yeah. Because I remember I saw it with a friend of mine and two of her roommates. And it was one of the most uncomfortable watching. Because they completely (laughs) missed missed sort of the point. They missed it. So for all those reasons, I picked American Psycho. This reaches the end of our discussion on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We really thank you guys for listening. Coming up next episode... We're going to do one more spooky movie that's a little bit more modern, equally as scary. And when this film came out at the end of the 20th century, and it scared the complete shit out of me. So you can look forward to that. Again, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at CoMoviePod. That's where we post updates and some cool things for you guys to enjoy. As well as, again, we do a video podcast on YouTube. Just search Cut Movie Pod, and you should be able to find us. Again, we really appreciate you guys listening and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Cut. That's a wrap. Bye.